A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Well, it's so good to have you here. Uh, if you've been around, you know that we are on our final stretch of our 21 days of prayer and fasting together as a community. And I want to encourage you, if you've been participating in that, uh, to finish strong in these last three or four days uh, through Wednesday. And we've been hearing great stories of what people have had some spiritual breakthroughs and felt some things impressed from God. And I tell you, it's just such a great thing to be able to rejoice together with you and also to praise God for his work in the midst of this season. If there has been something um, that you've experienced, and maybe it was a kind of a, a dynamic moment with God or something that happened inside of you or something that an impression that he uh, put upon your soul, we would love to hear about that, not only to rejoice and pray with you on that, but to give God praise for that. If you want to share one of those stories with us, uh, if you could just email that to us, to stories at cornwallchurch.com just stories at cornwallchurch.com, and we would love to rejoice with you on that. But I want to uh, encourage you to finish strong on that, continue to seek God, and we've been praying that you would experience him in a very fresh and powerful way uh, during these 21 days. Also, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been immersing ourselves in a chapter out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to do that for today and two more weeks after this as well. One of the most, I think, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. It would be, if, if you ask me what were my top five, three to five uh, chapters of the Bible, this would be in that category, a very short list of my absolute favorite uh, passages. And what we've used for the, the theme verse for the series is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, where it says, you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Behold your God. And I think that throughout this whole um, chapter that Isaiah is sending this message. That it's kind of like a prayer that many of us were taught when we were little children. It started this way. God is great. God is good. Just stop there. Don't get into the food part. But God is great and God is good. And throughout Isaiah 40, we just see this over and over again as, as Isaiah just shows the greatness of God and in his greatness, his goodness in the midst of his greatness. In the very first week, we saw that this God is great in his grace, in his graciousness. When he says, comfort my people Israel, tell them that their sins have been paid for. They didn't pay for them. He paid for them. They have received from the Lord's hand double for their sin. Not double punishment, double blessing. 
because he came with his reward. He came with his recompense and he came for them and there was nothing that would stand in the way. That he would fill in the valleys and he would bring down the high places and he would smooth out the rough places. This was the gracious God. Behold your God. And then last week we looked at this verse that seems almost out of place in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. This outlier verse, but it shows a different facet of God's greatness. He's great in his gentleness. Yes, his arm rules the world, but he tends his flock like a shepherd. And he gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he gently guides those that have young in this greatness of God. One of the things we looked at last week with a little more uh, extensively was this anthropomorphic term that Isaiah uses for God, this human character, this human trait that he puts on something non-human, something divine, on God, when he talked about God's arm, that God's arm is the one that rules the world. God's arm is the one that gathers the lambs and carries them close to himself, his arm. Today, we're going to look at another anthropomorphic term that Isaiah uses. This time, it's not the arm. This time, it's God's great hand. He uses this picture of God's great hand, the providential hand of God. The hand that guides, the hand that provides, the hand that protects, the hand that comforts and consoles, the hand that disciplines. But what we see today is the greatness of this hand. So great. In fact, Isaiah would use this term over and over again. Later in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13, he writes, or God would say, my own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I summon them, they all stand up together. It's my hand that, that lays the foundations of the earth, that spreads out the heavens. And those two themes, the heavens and the earth, will come up again and again. When I think about it, his hand is the one that spreads out the heavens and the foundation of the earth. It reminds me of that spiritual we sang when we were kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. We're not going to sing it today. But he's got the whole world in his hands. This beautiful picture of God's greatness displayed in his hand. Remember who this was originally written to. This would have been very important to them. These people had lived through some difficulties in their world, the, the, the global stage as they knew it, their nation, what had happened, personally, the pain, the difficulties, the struggles that they had gone through. And in addition to that, their own propensity to wander away from God has brought some stuff onto themselves. And when in all of this, they begin to have maybe their view of God skewed a little bit because of the circumstances around them, because of the situations, because of the events that have, that have played out. And their perspective of God is a little inaccurate. It's not clear. It's, it's not correct. And for them, they believed in God. They just didn't trust him or follow him. And I want to show of hands at all, but... If you're anything like me, there have been seasons when I believed in God. No question there. I didn't necessarily trust him or follow him or submit to him. And that's where they find themselves. They know there is Yahweh, but they begin to question because the picture isn't so clear. They begin to question, is, is God still there or has he abandoned them? Does he even see what's going on or does he not care at all? I mean, is, is he even aware of, of, of this? And, and does it matter to him? And if it does, and he is there and he does see it, then can he do anything about it? Is it hopeless or not? And they begin to question God. They begin to ask these questions. We'll look at this again in, in week five of the series, some questions they ask about God. And Isaiah comes along to set them straight, to clear their vision. 
And instead of giving a theological statement to answer all of their questions, what's fascinating is that he confronts their questions with a whole list of his own questions. In fact, depending on how you count them, there are like 12 questions in rapid fire succession in three verses, just this question after question after question after question, and he'll do it again later in the chapter as well. These questions that are rhetorical questions, he's not looking for an answer. These questions that the answer is actually quite obvious. They shouldn't have to think very hard to answer these questions. But these questions that he puts out there are questions, questions that illustrate the inconceivable and ineffable greatness of God. That if you look at these questions and as you come to that, that answer, you begin to understand that his greatness goes beyond our capacity to even understand that we don't have the bandwidth to grasp the greatness of God. What does Paul write? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. He is infinite, we are finite. He is eternal, we are temporary. We are created, he's the creator. There is no way that we have the capacity. And it's not just our capacity to understand it, but to even express that. That's what ineffable means. It's, it's beyond our vocabulary. It's beyond our ability to articulate. We don't even have the words for this. It's so much greater than we could ever grasp. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Now, if the psalmist would say, there is no way that I could ever fathom the greatness of God. If the great prophets of God cannot grasp the greatness of God, I don't have a chance at all. So today, I'm not going to try to help you fathom the greatness of God. What I would like to do in our time today is maybe just help expand just a little bit our understanding of the greatness of God. Now, before we get into this, I need to say three things right up front. The first thing is this. For those of you who are taking notes and filling in the blanks, we're not going to fill in another blank for a very long time. So put your pens down. Because otherwise, you'll be going, did he say it? Did I miss it? Did he miss it? Did they miss it? Put your pen down. We're not filling. I will let you know when it's time to fill in blanks. Okay? Deal? Okay. Second thing is this. That this might not even be a sermon. For part of this, you may feel like, am I in church or am I in science class? Now, let me just say this. There's not going to be a test. You don't have to remember any of this. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to worry about that at all. But I'm asking you, please, unlike your other science classes, stay awake and at least listen. At least just listen. And then the third thing I want to say is, and this is a confession. Last week, inadvertently, honest, inadvertently, I lied to you. I know, I know, I know. Last week, I pointed out that in week one of this series, we covered five verses, and last week we covered three. And I said, I promise you next week we will pick up the pace. I told you that, and I did mean that, but I lied. We're really going to cover one verse today, but I promise next week, honest, next week we'll, we'll pick up the pace. We're going to really look at one verse, just one verse. We'll look at a couple others that reinforce it, but just one verse. And this verse is filled with these questions these rhetorical questions, these obviously answered questions, these questions that illustrate the inconceivable, ineffable greatness of God. So with your pins down and your minds focused, ready to go, we're going to look at 
Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 today. Verse 12. And it says this. Who has measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hand? That's the first question. And who has marked off the heavens with a span? And who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? And who has weighed the mountains in scales? And, and the hills in a balance? Just a set of questions, and it's a very obvious answer. If you grew up in Sunday school, the answer was always Jesus. All right, three people went to Sunday school. The answer was always Jesus. Now, this is before Jesus, so in the Old Testament, the answer is always God. Yeah, okay, there we go. So that's it. That's the answer. Here's the questions. Here's the answer. It's God. It's greatness. This ought to be a short sermon. Should be, maybe. Uh, it won't be, but nice to think that anyway. I want us to slow down with this set of questions and walk through them question by question, at times even word by word, so that we can begin to understand the greater magnitude of the greatness of God in his great hand. Starts off this way, verse 12. Question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? No, it starts off, he talks about measuring things, and, and I, I've, I've got this. This, I think, is just absolutely the coolest. It's like, it's like nesting dolls for the kitchen because you begin to pull them out, and they're actually for measuring. These are measuring devices, not that we ever use them in our house, but these are measuring devices. I don't know if you've ever seen these things, and let me just tell you, if you ever decide to cook something for your family and it says to use the measuring device, let me encourage you, use the measuring device. Don't just guess. I think, yeah, just use these things. Because it'll tell you how many teaspoons or tablespoons or cups or whatever it might be, and you have these measuring things. Well, scriptures comes along and says, God measures some things, but he doesn't use the measuring cups. He doesn't use the measuring spoons. In fact, what God uses is the hollow of his hand. Now, if you take your palm like this and just kind of flatten it out, but then you kind of intensely like make a claw, it kind of makes this concave area in your palm. That's the hollow of your hand. And it says, and he measures the water with the hollow of his hand. Let me try to illustrate what he's talking about. I have some water here. So I'm not going to use the measuring cup or the measuring spoons, but I'm going to measure the water in the high. I know I'm scared. Oh, no. Okay, that's how much water I can hold in the hollow of my hand. It's that much. And scripture says, and he measures the water in the hollow of his hand. And right now you might be going, well, big deal. So he doesn't use measuring spoons. He doesn't use measuring cups. Not a big deal. He uses his hand. He's God. He can do that. No, wait, 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 wait. It says he measures the waters. What waters? What, what are we talking about here? And if you look at the context of that verse and the surrounding verses, He's using universal, global, cosmic type phrases, talking about heaven and earth. He measures the waters. He's talking about the waters of earth. So what does that mean? Well, let's just take a look at that for a minute. And let's start with lakes. Forget the ponds and the puddles, though with an atmospheric river, maybe we should take them into consideration. But what does it mean that he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand? Just think about a lake. You think about our Skagit campus down there in Skagit, Skagit uh, County. The biggest lake that is in Skagit County is called Big Lake. Brilliant, whoever named that. Big Lake is beautiful, great place to fish, wakeboard, you know, inner tube, swim, it's great. Big Lake has the surface area of 520 acres. 
Its average depth is 14 feet, and its deepest point is 23 feet deep. Not a very big lake, but by your standards, great. It's not a competition or anything, but Skagit, here in Whatcom County, we have Lake Whatcom. It's not 520 acres, it's 5,000 acres, 13 miles long, and 350 feet deep at its deepest point. Now, that's a lot more water. But even those two seem like puddles compared to, let's say, Lake Chelan. If you've ever been to Lake Chelan, if you've ever gone from Chelan to Stahik, and it's 50 miles long, and the deepest point of Lake Chelan is 1,486 feet deep, there's a lot of water. But even that is just a little splash in the bucket when you start looking at the Great Lakes, these five lakes, four of which we share with, with our neighbors to the north. 20% of the Earth's fresh water is contained in the Great Lakes. And Lake Superior, the surface area of Lake Superior is not marked off with how many acres it covers. Lake Superior is measured on the surface as 31,700 square miles. That's how big Lake Superior is. The same area of the entire country of Austria. You could take Austria and put it in Lake Superior. Good night, mate. Oh, another shrimp on the Bobby. That's from Dumb and Dumber. I know what Austria and Australia is. Okay. <laughs> I had someone after nine o'clock say, you do know Austria? Yes. That's Lake Superior. There are 117 million lakes on the planet. And God says, uh, I measure the waters in the hollow of my hand. And lakes usually aren't just by themselves. Usually there's tributaries and streams and rivers that come in and go out. So what about the rivers? Now, now we will say this for our Skagit folks. You guys win on this one. Okay, it's not a competition, but the Skagit River is, it definitely takes precedence over the Nooksack. We'll, we'll, we'll concede to that. But those look like little streams compared to like the mighty Columbia River. Did any of you growing up ever have to sing or get to sing that Woody Guthrie song, Roll On, Columbia, Roll On? No one in the first service did either. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. The mighty Columbia River. Or how about the Colorado River? It flows through seven different states, through the Grand Canyon. 40 million people depend on the Colorado River for their water. The Missouri River, the, the Mississippi River. But again, these are pretty amazing, but really nothing compared to, say, the Amazon. The Amazon River flows for 4,000 miles. 4,000 miles. Let me put that in perspective for you. 4,000 miles is from Fairbanks, Alaska to Miami, Florida. And the Amazon River flows that far. And the amount, the volume of water that flows out of the Amazon basin, the rainforest through the Amazon River, out into the mouth and then into the Atlantic Ocean, the amount of water that flows out of the Amazon River if you had the water that it takes to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, but you had 83 Olympic-sized swimming pools, the amount of water it takes to fill 83 Olympic-sized swimming pools, that much water is flowing out of the mouth of the Amazon every second into the Atlantic Ocean. 
So much water flows out of the Amazon into the Atlantic Ocean, so much fresh water dumped into the Atlantic Ocean that you could be 99 miles offshore, directly opposed from the mouth of the Amazon River, and drink fresh water out of the Atlantic Ocean because there's that much. And yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7, it says all the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. What about the seas and the oceans? These massive bodies of water that cover 71% of our globe's surface. These big oceans that have these mounds, these bulges on both sides of the globe, where on the one side, the, the, the gravitational pull of the moon is pulling and trying to get the, the water to come to the moon, and the, and the water wants to go, but the Earth's gravitational pull is stronger and pulling back, and it mounds up in the middle, and on the other side of the globe is the inertia that has a, 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 an identical type of mound, and all of this water and there are 50 different seas on our planet. The Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, the, the, the Red Sea, the, the Caribbean, all these seas. And four oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian and the Arctic. The oceans with an average depth of 12,100 feet, the average depth of our oceans. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, off the coast of Guam, the Mariana Trench, 36,000 feet deep, the deepest point of our ocean, seven miles down. And God measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. How they ever calculated this, I do not know. But it has been said that there are 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth. 326 million trillion. And God holds it. In the hall of his hand. Oh, one more thing. Your body is 60% water, and God holds you in his hand. If we just stopped there, the magnitude of the greatness of God, of his great hand, he says, Oh, let me just show you how I measure water. But Isaiah says, Oh, that's just the appetizer. That's the opening act. We're just getting warmed up. He goes on, verse 12 again. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens with a span? Now, a span. A span was a measurement that was used in the Old Testament. It was half of a cubit. And roughly... A cubit was from the tip of the elbow to the top of the middle finger. That was a cubit. And a span was from the tip of a thumb to the tip of the small finger. Roughly nine inches is a span. So in the story of Goliath, when they talk about how big he is, they say he is six cubits and a span. Quite frankly, to me, once you're over six cubits, it doesn't matter. <laughs> He's tall. But it's a span. And that's how they would use as a, as a measuring unit. But when it comes to the cosmos, we don't measure things in nine-inch increments. In fact, what is most often used as a measurement is not yards or feet or really even miles that much or kilometers if you're from Canada. It's something dairy. It's a light year. That's the measuring unit that we use when we're talking about the heavens. 
a light year. How far could the speed of light go in a year? The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Speed of light in a vacuum, 186,000 miles per second. And if you kept that up for an hour, you would be going at 670 million miles per hour. If it were possible to keep that pace up for an entire year, no stopping for bathrooms, no stopping for lunch, no stopping for gas, to go at 186,000 miles per second for an entire year, you have 5.88 trillion miles. That's one light year, 5.88 trillion miles. That's the measuring unit that we use when we talk about space in the cosmos. Okay, let's try to put it in perspective. We're on an earth in a thing called a solar system that's part of a galaxy that's part of the universe. So let's talk about our solar system, not our galaxy, our solar system. Our solar system, if we were to do this to scale, to scale, and you can fact check me on this one because I got this from a NASA website, all right. If the solar system, our solar system, were the size of this quarter, this was our solar system. So our solar system has one star, one sun, it's the sun, you know, and then it's got these planets. So you have, if you can imagine, the sun right there in the middle, and you have Mercury and Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, no comment, Uranus, and then Neptune. Seventh grade boy in me coming out right there. You have these planets. Which, by the way, do you ever feel bad for Pluto? The poor Pluto. For untold thousands of years out there doing the Pluto thing, and suddenly we decide it's going to be a planet. We put it in the textbooks, and then arbitrarily we decide it's not a planet anymore. I mean, I feel bad for Pluto. Pluto's like the Y of the, of the, of the vowels. A-E-I-O-U-N. Sometimes. Pluto. I mean, we had nine planets. Was there anything wrong with nine planets? It makes a perfect symmetrical Brady Bunch box. I mean, Pluto is like the Jan Brady of the planets. It's always Mars and Mars and Mars. And never, okay, we're got, forget it. Okay, so here is, our, here is our solar system. And we, third rock from the sun, we have the sun 93 million miles away from us. And our solar system with one sun, i.e. star, is a part of the Milky Way galaxy. It's a barred spiral galaxy. And our sun is just one of the stars, one, one of the bright spots in this galaxy. And if this were the size of our solar system, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of the North American continent. Estimated between 100 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I must say, when Ford named a car Galaxy, they overnamed it. And if you were to go from one edge of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, 5.88 trillion miles, it would take you 100,000 years to get to the other side. Do the math on that. 5.88 trillion times 100,000. And for most of human history, until about 100 years ago, it was believed that was the end of the world as we know it. Until the 1920s, when a man named Edwin Hubble was curious about this little fuzzy spot. Didn't seem like the other stars. 
seemed like it was some kind of a gas space dust thing. And in the 1920s, he discovered what he referred to as the Andromeda area there, which later we discovered was the Andromeda galaxy. There's two. It's not just one galaxy. There's two galaxies. And the discovery that the Andromeda galaxy was one and a half times bigger than the Milky Way with maybe up to 10 times more stars than the Milky Way. And that major galaxy out there, the Andromeda galaxy, was two million light years away from our galaxy. So now there are these two galaxies. And even as they began to get better telescopes and greater observatories, even in my lifetime, as a high school student, as a college student, there was this expansion that, no, there's actually 60 galaxies out there, 60 of these things. And then in the 1990s, there was the launching of the Hubble Space Telescope to get above and out of the atmosphere so it could see. And the Hubble Space Telescope focused in on one dark spot, took this long exposure with this deep, deep look, and realized that in that one spot, there were actually 3,000 galaxies. And then just 20-some years ago, in the early 2000s, they realized the estimations were so small, there were actually 200 billion galaxies. That is, until they launched the James Webb Space Telescope, and more powerful still, so that today, astrophysicists and astronomers believe that there are somewhere between 6 and 20 trillion galaxies in our universe. And God says, oh, by the way, I mark it off with a span of my great hand. And you just start doing the math on this. If our Milky Way galaxy has somewhere between 1 and 400 billion stars, and some galaxies are bigger and some are smaller, but there are 6 to 20 trillion galaxies? That's pretty amazing. Later in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, he writes another question. To whom will you compare me? Another question. Who is my equal? Don't answer. Look up. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these. Now, I don't know if your brain is hurting, so let's leave science class for a minute. Let's just take a little break, kind of cleanse the palate, kind of you know, get all the cobwebs out, because those numbers are so big, it just becomes white, white static, you know. So instead of, uh, instead of science, let's go to music class for a minute, okay? Just so this will be helpful, kind of bringing some of you, like, this is the kind of sermon I can understand. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, you're like, yeah, that's good. I get this one. Have you ever wondered why is it that the same tune for A, B, C, D, E, F, G is the same tune they use for Bob, Bob, Black Sheep, have you any? Well, same tune. Could they not write something more? Could they not be more original? And as if two wasn't enough, the same tune to twinkle, twinkle, little Who's writing this stuff? In fact, just to kind of help us clear our heads, let's sing twinkle, twinkle together out loud. 
Twinkle, twinkle. I need to hear you. Start. Keep going. More volume. Up. Uh, sounds so good. Like a big ending. Beautiful. All right. Nice harmonies down here, unless that was actually singing out of tune. It was beautiful. So wonderful song. Wonderful song. Like a diamond in the sky. You know, I don't know if you've seen the pictures that have come back from the James Webb telescope. They're fascinating. But one iteration before, the Hubble Space Telescope took this picture. Like a diamond in the sky. And it looks like all of those stars are all mashed together. Keep in mind that those stars are light years apart. Our sun, the star, the next closest star to our sun is called Proxima Centauri. It's 4.24 light years away. That's just the next star. And in our galaxy, there's 100 to 400 billion. And there's 6 to 20 trillion galaxies. Twinkle, twinkle, little star? Really? Now, our sun is just a medium-sized star. And there's another star. It's in the Orion constellation. It's called Betelgeuse. You can also pronounce it Betelgeuse, which is what I prefer. Chuck, we're coming for your daughter. <laughs> Betelgeuse is a red supergiant. Betelgeuse is not the largest star that we can see, but Betelgeuse is 1,000 times bigger than our sun, 14,000 times brighter than our sun. Not such a little star. And again, do the math. Because we're just talking about stars. We're not even including planets and moons. These are just stars. Hundreds of billions of stars times 6 to 20 trillion. Oh, and, and look what he says at the end of verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts? One by one. And calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Oh, that's the great hand of God. Myriads and myriads of stars, planets, and moons stretching majestically across the cosmos for untold eons, silently proclaiming one eternal message. The psalmist says it best. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to the end of their earth. Their words to the end of the world. And God says, I mark it with a span of my hand. Carl Sagan, brilliant man grossly underestimated the size of the universe before he passed. But he said this. He said, if Earth is the only inhabitable planet in our cosmos, the rest of it seems like such a waste of space. 
Now, he was way more brilliant than I am. But I would push back and say, oh, no, not at all. Because all of the rest of the cosmos, if there is no other inhabitable planet, all of it just screams the greatness of our God. It's not wasted space. God says, let me just show you that you will never, ever fathom my greatness. Okay, so Isaiah, he says, let's bring it back down to earth. So he continues on, back to verse 12. Who has measured the water in the piles of his hand, marked out the heavens with a span, and then he brings it back down to earth. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? As NIV says, in a basket. And weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance. And I won't go into these as much because I'm out of time. But when I think about that, him saying, I gather up the dust of the earth in a basket. A tisket, a tasket, a, a divinely held basket. I think of all the dust, all the sand. I think about all the deserts. There are over 70 deserts on our planet. Think about all the sand of the desert, the Negev and the, the, the uh, Sahara and, and the, the Gobi, all of, these, all of these deserts. Gathers up all the sand and every beach and every sandbox and every shoe, all the sand. He says, oh, and I, I carry it around in a basket. It's not a big deal to me. And, and as far as the mountains and the hills, if you ever want to know how much they weigh, I've got this little balance, this little scale that I hold. I can tell you exactly how much the mountains weigh. You want to know how much Mount Baker weighs? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what Mount Baker weighs. I'll tell you what Mount Rainier weighs. I tell you what Mount Satan weighs. Mount Saint, Satan, Saint, Saint Helen's weighs. She lost some weight, by the way, a few years back. I tell you what Mount Adams weighs. Mount Hood, Mount Jefferson, the Three Sisters, Crater Lake, Mount Shasta, and all the foothills of the Cascades. I'll tell you what they weigh. Oh, you want to know the Rockies? I've got that too. The Andes, the Alps, the Himalayas, all of it. You see, he just asked these questions over and over again. And the questions simply illustrate the inconceivable, ineffable greatness of our God. Paul would write it this way in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been Clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Sometimes I'll hear people say, I would believe God if he would just show himself to me. Interesting. God has revealed himself every single day from the beginning of creation his invisible qualities, his nature. When Isaiah writes this, I, th I think he wants Israel to behold their God in a new way. Like when Job says this in Job 42, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So I, you know, I, I knew about you. I, I believed that there was this, but, but now it's different. I see you. Okay. Pick up your pens. I'm going to fill in some blanks here. Now it's time. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Don't just look for him. Look to him. Don't just say, is he out there? Yes, he is. 
But more than that, if he created this universe, if he holds it together, if he controls it, if he's the sovereign over the universe, then why do we keep trying to take things into our own hands instead of trusting the great hand of God? Why not say, okay, I will look to you as well. So when I see this, this one verse, God measures the water in the hollow of his hand, carries the deserts in a basket, weighs the mountains and stretches out the cosmos. That leaves me with one other question. Who am I? I mean, with the world so vast, with God so transcendent beyond that, who am I? The psalmist would write in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? Well, here's the truth. That the same God who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand, according to Psalm 56, catches every one of your tears and saves them in a bottle. The same God who calls out the stars one by one and calls them by name knows your name and calls you, my precious daughter, my beloved son. The same God who carries around deserts, weighs out mountains, is the same God who will walk with us through the dry seasons of life, through the valleys, and take us to the mountaintop. It's that same God with his great, great hand. Years ago, there was a, um, a naturalist. His name was Charles William Beebe. And he was, uh, had a friend, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, in fact, there's a picture, an old, old picture of these two, two guys, naturalists, and, and I didn't take this with my iPhone. That is not, it's a very old picture. But Beebe would write about his encounters with his friend Roosevelt and a, a repeated experience that they had in their friendship over the years. And this is what he writes about it. They would go out at night and we would search until we found, with or without glasses, the faint heavenly spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. When Roosevelt would say this, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And he writes, after an interval, Roosevelt would grin at me and say, now, I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. He said over their friendship over the years, 40 or 50 times, they repeated that, and it never lost its impact. So how then shall we live? Well, I think with appropriate smallness, worship, and peace. That's how we should live. 
appropriate smallness. You say, well, you're making me feel small. I'm not trying to make you feel small. You are small. We are small. That's the reality. Appropriate smallness. But with the same God who marks it out and measures it out and holds me, appropriate worship. <laughs> oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands hath made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. When you begin to understand how big God is, how great God is, there is no other response except absolute worship of his greatness. And peace. Because he knows your name. And he holds you in the palm of his hands. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves. There's the appropriate smallness. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. That's where the worship comes. That he may lift you up in due time. Here's the peace. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's an old hymn. It says, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storm and through the night, Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Thousands of years before that was ever written, Isaiah says in Isaiah 41, verse 13, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says, Do not fear. I will help you. See, we try to take things into our own hands. But the great hand of our God measures the waters in the hollow, marks out the heavens with a span, carries the deserts, and weighs the mountains, holds us in his hand, and takes our hand. He knows your name. He holds your hand. He is God. Behold your God. To live in that reality. To know that we will worship and walk in confidence because of our great God.